0: Hello everyone, and welcome to episode four of Ignite the Flame Audio, where we're picking up basically where we left off. For those of you who are just joining us, this podcast, basically, just to break it down for you, we have a reading of a chapter taken from our most recent work, in this case being A Light in the Mist. We read the chapter to you, and then we go into two different sections, the first being Origin of Ideas, where we discuss inspirations and how they were then included in the chapter and then another section called tips of the trade where basically we discuss any tips for aspiring authors for anyone who might be wishing to become an author themselves basically it just includes any sort of tips of the trade that would otherwise help you along that journey so without any further ado, let's get straight into it welcome to ignite the flame audio where our hope is to bring people together, one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Light in the Mist Chapter 4 Tongues of Fire We walk shoulder to shoulder, each covering the other's position, waiting for a second attempt, but it does not come. Instead, comes reinforcement in the form of Sergeant McLean. I've never been so pleased to hear his vocalization and be in his menacing shadow with that weasel-like face and mysterious features. Ach, Jackal, James, I've been looking all over for you. Are you okay? I heard there was a bit of a problem either ends. We will tell you on the way to the royal household, leaning back against the support of fine leather upholstery in the back of the sergeant's private carriage with golden linings and a puffed texture to it. "'Well, not exactly. We're going to make one last trip to the bank before we go back. An errand for the chief inspector. And guess who his golden child may be?' With a look of disgust eating its way through McLean's normally blank expressioned face. "'Very well. We have a few leads of our own we need to pursue. And then it triggers a trap long since plotted to spoil everything we'd worked so hard to achieve. "'No need men. We've attained the murderer. It's all Mr. Elias.' found his gloves buried in the garden at the rear of the establishment, with bloodstains still on them. That would explain why there were no direct markings left on the evidence. But what? Mr. Ilias, something had to be wrong. But what was I saying? The prospect of this criminal being apprehended, and I did not want it to have end, due to a lack of evidence and presence throughout the investigation. Who gave you the lead, or did you stumble upon them? I ask hoping for the end not to come to someone of least suspicion. Or at least, that's what he would like us to think. Perhaps I was wrong. I have been before. But something just did not add. But for now, I could not place my finger upon it. No, actually we found them at the station. They'd been handed in by a gardener of some sort, said to be a Miss Eidelwyn. My head jumps to attention remembering full well that name which Mr. Ilias apparently did not recognize, and perhaps her presence boded a sentence for himself behind bars, or at least the end of a very tightened rope. Then again, that interruption by Mrs. Ilias was almost too perfect for a mere act. Could both have played a part? I must continue on in the hopes to unravel the twisted truth. We ride to the bank with its statues of famous pioneers gracing the entrance, more gold in the title than in the building itself, and people to and fro to pay or save whatever credit their family name possessed. The class division was more apparent here than anywhere else, with people dressed in nothing but their undergarments, cuts and bruises riddled their bodies, and plague gripped the young ones with a green mist as if trying to pry the very last breath from their lifeless corpses, and all the kind and considerate gentlefolk can do is spit upon them and shove them down. This is the society we dwell within, but I will be darned if I don't help them from the gutters. A gentleman who has had much to drink flogs a peasant with his cane. Each strike more severe than the other, and all the constabulary can do is turn away. Stop it! Sir, I am talking to you! I fight to say the words past the lump forming within my throat, and the tear to my eye. I rest my hand upon his shoulder. If you have lost control and are so insecure that you have to exact vengeance on those who cannot defend themselves, then I urge you to try the same with me, knowing I was a man of his stature and class, so as not to be seen as a common brawl, but a display of honor and goodwill. Give over. You'd be willing to risk your name and get your ass kicked for a stupid lower class woman? I withdrew my clenched fist, and thrust it toward with such ferocity that it shattered the gentleman's nose and yielded blood from its cavities. You <laughs> raving, lids. as he fell to the ground, I turned to notice a crowd had gathered and cheered me as I stand tall over the upper class. People, please, this gentleman is the victim of his own sins. Do not cheer, but take pity and learn from this animal that drinking excessively only turns you into something favourable by others. But if angry, it releases an inner monster that, once free, is difficult to cage. And I know all too well about inner monsters. I turn and see McCline, <sniffs> waving his truncheon backwards and forwards, as if I had crossed the line. And then, stupid gentleman, slip it on the pavement like that. "'He keeps excessively drinking like that, he'll bring himself harm, "'with a wink of obscurity and shrewdness, to reassure me of his sincerity. "'Are you all right, madam?' I ask, expecting no gratitude for my barbaric actions. "'How I expected to show a difference to my fellow man by beating another "'is beyond my comprehension.' "'Yes, sir. Thanks to you. I am forever in your debt, "'and perhaps one day I could repay your kindness?' "'Her eyes were as deep and awe-inspiring as the night sky.' a sparkle in the reflection as tears come to her face, and beautiful flowing hair like sheets of gold, resting with a hint of violet upon an angelic form. How something so beautiful could be so humble and graceful in origin! I know it to be rude of me to ask, miss, but what of your age? Because, to myself, you seem far too young to be cursed to this life, hoping to brighten her day further with my charm, and to show that not all gentlemen are heartless, seeking for a servant but some actually value the idea of a female companion and wish to treat them as royalty actually sir believe me or not i'm 22 years of age but my appearance leaves nothing to be desired so thank you for your kindness once again but i'm afraid i cannot repay your kindness with anything materialistic her voice uncommon perhaps once a lady of class previous or perhaps imitating the way the others speak i guess might i ask your name miss and perhaps offer you further hospitality. In fact, not only to yourself, but to all your family and friends here. Everyone gathers around as though I come bearing gifts for all, and hold the answer to poverty, but I would like to think I did. If we could spare just a little of our wealth, the world would be a brighter place, and people would befriend each other. We would have no need for war and slander, nor fighting of any sort, but peace, prosperity, and family i feel good about myself, Jekyll. But alas, my friend, we must return to the matter at hand, uttered James, as if not ever meaning to ruin this golden moment. But he was right. We had little time to waste. I hope to see you all for our annual gathering at my humble abode. I will have Bernard escort you personally. Goodbye for now, and please see to it that gentleman receives some help in a dozen ways, medical and moral. With a symbol of appreciation on the cheek, I glance upon her, not even knowing her name, but feeling as though she was a friend, all the similar. And with a turn and a few steps, she was gone. Disappeared amongst the crowd as if never to be seen again. But something in my spirit assured me we would meet again. We proceed up the marble stairs to the entrance of the bank, the redness of face wearing off as James calms me down and reminds it was only gratitude despite my heart wishing for more. But of course James was right and I had to remain focused. I could not let anything distract me, or else more lives could be lost. Something about Mr. Ilias being the murderer just did not make sense. A shop owner killing a photographer. Were the furs illegally imported, and how did he gain entrance into the royal household? No. This Miss Idlewyn would have to be sought after, and questioned before my conscience would lay to rest. The bank, full of people of all classes, converging with an array of different accents and mindsets, trying to withdraw money from their capable hands, the gentlemen with their small fortunes, and the other so-called commoners, with their life savings in a bag no greater than that of a tea jar. Good day, gentlemen, and how may I be of service? Do you wish to open an account? That will not be necessary, my good fellow. We are strictly here to run an errand, that is all. But thank you for the kind gesture, I imply, assuring the banker before he wasted too much breath on the dead cause. "'Excuse me for being forward, gentlemen, but are you police officers? "'It is just our manager is very conscious of the law "'and likes to know of your presence, so he can make a good impression. "'But do not repeat what I have just mentioned, "'or I will be laid off and without a job,' explained the banker, "'with his life resting in our hands and at our mercy. "'Fear not. Your secret's safe of us.' James assures the banker, with an inquisitive look, as if to ask for some favour in return. Tell me more about this manager, Mr. Finch, sir. Oswald Finch. Trying to hide his humour, James calmed his breathing and proceeded with the interrogation, although to what end was still unclear. Well, sir, he has been acting strange lately, ever since that business at Buckingham Palace, and whenever I ask about it, He shuns me, and changes the topic of conversation. I see. And the manager's name? James continues, through the motions, as if by clockwork, closing in on the key element. But what? Another lead, or something more? Augustus Pine, sir. A look of astonishment hits both our faces, like a runaway steam-driven locomotive, colliding at a high speed with every ounce of force. Augustus Pine, we both proclaim, as if back from the dead. No wonder he had been acting strange. He had been to the afterlife and back, most likely. Yes, uh, a fine gentleman. And I'm not just saying that because he is my employer, but because he is a friend. With a sprite's grin appearing on his face and determining a slight brown nosing personality. Chuckle, shall we inform him? Better to ask the Sergeant, James. Well, he'll find out soon enough, what with the murderer still at large. MacLine, always keeping an encasing on things, and conscience of all that he said, and to whom? The big-mouthed imbecile. Murderer? Has Augustus been murdered, sir? A hand clasps around Finch's mouth, and he sinks to below his desk, hiding his emotions like he were to be ashamed of expression, but it just proved he had a compassionate heart, or he was a good actor. I mean, an instant promotion may be the perfect motive for murder, but hold on. Augustus Pine was a photographer by trade, not a banker. This case displayed more questions than answers, like an ornate web leading in varying directions, and all convening on a central point which, for now, lie under a shroud of mist. Yes, a minor hobby, and he only performed at special occasions, such as Friday night but the body was not discovered until Saturday morning, and a hall of people would have seen it, unless it was moved. How did Finch know all this? I had to pry deeper. James had uncovered something, and we were going to bring it into the open. As James asks, How did you know so much about the crime scene? Well, if you must know, I was at the scene, as you put it, having a drink, and I did not witness anything out of the ordinary. And at 7.30 p.m., I got up and moved to the main hall to accompany Augustus to the position with which he would take the photographs. I then enjoyed festivities for the rest of the evening, and Pine did not leave my sight the entire time until we departed in separate vehicles. Do you have anyone that can account for your being there? Why, yes, I do. That lovely couple that moved into the East District most recently... Mr. and Mrs. Ilias, I believe. They can account for me. But Mrs. Ilias did feel awfully faint at the end of the evening, probably due to the amount of festivities within her system. That would explain her lack of memory of the scene, but it still did not account for her knowledge of Miss Idlewyn. More excavation was needed, but better not exasperate the banker, else he might alert the imitation Pine to our presence. Well, if you will excuse us, we will have a few questions for Mr. Pine. Where might we find him? Upstairs. First door on the right. And if I could ask that you knock first, he is slightly startled as of late. Yes, I wonder why. Him being a fraud, or to confuse matters more, he could be Augustus Pine. And the murderer could be someone completely different. As we walk upstairs, McLean continues to interrogate Finch and enables us to proceed with our investigation. We come to the door and notice his ornate varnish coating, both window and panel, to appear as a mirror reflecting all which is casting an image upon it. With a subtle push, it coaxes open, and the room is littered with paperwork from banks all over the country, and judicial statements of outstanding payments to be made, to the new manager of which the name had been torn from each with the replacement, Blood Snitch, written in reddened ink, or perhaps Blood, staining the pages as a warning to opposition, or maybe irritating inspectors. All of a sudden the door slams shut and the smell of smoke grips the room like a thick blanket of ash. Heat engulfs the paperwork and standing amongst the flames a dark figure, at first thought to be the cause, but thank God it is a person holding an extinguishing agent. They pour water over the fire before it becomes too overwhelming, but the flames devour the liquid as if for fuel for its consuming power. As we struggle breathing, the dark figure retreats and leaves us to breach the gates of fire. "'acting as if a test of our will to live. "'Overcome with ash, I fall to my knees "'and glance at an already semi-conscious James "'held aloft by mounds of incinerating paperwork. "'So much opposition and fire "'trying to take all we had learned. "'As a thief in the night, but we were too close. "'I gathered every inch of breath within me "'and rallied James to his feet, "'reassuring him that all will be well, "'despite the raging inferno which entombed us. "'We decide to breach the door.' and with an abrupt blow, the door flies open and flame engulfs us with its sinister tongue. Luckily, officers were in wait and throw water over us as soon as we exit the room, lapping the scars away from our bodies as if to heal. Soon after, the professionals quench the untamable beast, and the source is discovered. A cigar, gentlemen. and ethanol combined with perfumes of assault used to apparently douse the fire. This was no accident. You are both lucky to be alive, in my opinion. Thank you, Chief Fireman Rasby. We owe you our lives. Don't we, James? Well, your life, Jekyll. <laughs> a-, a joke, of course. James sniggers, as if the whole situation had been a brace of excitement for him. Meanwhile, I was still trying to deduce who the arsonist was. McCline approaches with Finch, in accompaniment, to wrap us in blankets and encourage normality within our breathing. Are you all right? I thought you were supposed to hold him in the compromising position. Ha! <laughs> But in all seriousness, how are you feeling? McLean asked, with his joke lifting our spirits almost enough to forget about our burning ordeal. Myself and Finch were conversing, and Finch noticed smoke coming from the room. Said he saw someone running down the corridor. Finch nods in agreement, and further states, They ran off down the corridor, tipping and shoving everything behind them, so as to belay being pursued. Well, whoever it was, again, they know of our presence, and did not want our interference. Perhaps the same person who sent the beatings our way, or someone completely anonymous. However, this blood-snitch character was now on the scene, and made his presence felt wherever they went. After all this, my health was brought into question, and I thought it was more than a decent time to receive an inspection of my own. With ash filling my lungs, and my eyes as though a victim of a volcanic eruption, each cough bringing me closer to breathing impairment, and not to mention the state of my clothing but alas, time could be found for each of these in turn. But first, personal hygiene was the key after this ordeal. My face had become littered with grey tinges, not of age, but of burnt remnants. If only I could have examined the evidence before it was lost. Oh well. Perhaps the cause was a reassurance of our heading, being of a correct orientation, and with that my spirit is lifted yet again. I glance in the shattered glass of the door to check the extent of the damage. A slight abrasion of the head and lower lip. Nothing which could not be contented with. But what surprised me the most was the ash on my teeth. After all, two days is long enough not to have your teeth cleaned. Without this in addition. So to the dental practitioner it was. I'll wait out here for you if you do not mind, Jekyll. Something about dental practitioners causes my skin to crawl. I think it's their equipment. (laughs) Very well, my friend. I will not be long but take my revolver, just in case that blood snitch tries anything. I hand over my revolver with a silver wolf carved into its handle, an ornamental nozzle engraved with a golden whisper, to add attraction to such a deadly device. The same can be said of the world. Normally the most capturing of flowers, or the most ornate of serpents and spiders, have death as their price. But if it means protection for the user, then there is no contest. I head into the dental surgery, and am shown in without delay, Strange that an appointment wasn't needed, but I would soon discover the reason. I lay back in the chair having visions of Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, unsheathing his blade and reaching for his contraption, but that was just a story, and this was only a dentist, was it not? Good afternoon, sir, and what will we be requiring today? A filling, or a general clean? Asks the dentist, with his face covered in cloth, as if I had been infested with an airborne disease and eyes that appear to victimize my weaker teeth from the stronger. Just a general clean, please, Dr. Boldsketch. A humorous name, I know, but try to contain your laughter, as I may remove the wrong tooth. (laughs) Let's see. Yes. Ah, very fine condition. No cavities. That's unexpected with today's rising sugar trade. Very good. Just in need of cleaning, then. Okay. Uh-huh. All done. I say, sir, do you partake in the smoking of tobacco? As it appears to have left a residue upon your teeth. Trying to engage me in conversation, only to sound like a fool with my tongue resting on his instrumental mirror and interrupting its natural flow. Upon removal, I diligently answer, No, I do not. I simply lead a life of excessive danger, is all, and cannot help it if it leaves markings as though its calling cards behind on my person. Well... You may leave when you are ready. And thank you, sir, for your cooperation. Business has been slow with everyone fearing sharp objects since... Since what? I ask, knowing more witnesses lie in this room, and what they could give would most assuredly give me further evidence in order to figure out the murderer's identity since their business at the Royals and the fire at the bank. It's all chaos out there. As I had suspected... Blutznich wanted this to come out into the open, increasing eyewitnesses to the point where our investigation became null and void, and they can slip away undetected whilst our interrogations continue. Were you present at any of them? Why yes. I was at the bank withdrawing some money from my account in order to pay some taxes, and all of a sudden I was ushered outside by a police officer. Luckily I had received my money, because all the paperwork was burned, and I heard from Mr. Finch that several accounts' details have been lost. That was mighty lucky, then. I replied, as if a bold sketch to elaborate further on his relationship with Finch. Yes, quite. Mr. Finch was the clerk who withdrew my money, so he assured me after the fire and told me about how the cause of the fire was a cigar, and the two inspectors were almost killed in the accident. My heart goes out to those poor chaps, risking their lives for the good of others. Before I could thank those kind words, I remained in cover, so as to lie dormant, without my identity intimidating him into submission or silence. Yes, I suppose those firemen are a brave group. But Mr. Finch does not know the meaning of the word confidential, does he? (laughs) I joke in order to reveal common ground, in the hopes to push further for his relationship toward Boldsketch. No. After he told me... He told half the town... I just happened to be the first he imbued with knowledge, and I was lucky too, as I had to get back here to continue my work. The trail had gone cold. It turned as Finch was just a loose-lipped human being. But what was that? Do you smell smoke? No. Cannot smell any different than what you brought on your person, sir. Perhaps the motor vehicle's outside. No. This was smoke. Ash-like smoke. Not framing origin but that of a more pungent aroma, which led me to investigate the presence of perhaps an eyewitness at the scene of the fire. I had to discover the source, as it may lead me to my next lead. I chase the scent as a ravenous animal in search of his next meal, and discover the window with black marks upon its seal, but not regular in shape, but before I can examine them. Damn soot. Gets everywhere. Forgive me, sir. The receptionist normally maintains this place's cleanliness, after closing the glass on my evidence, I decided a new course of action was needed. Could I re-attempt what happened at the crime scene? And if it failed, then all it was was a mere handshake. Well, here it went. I shook Bold Sketch hand in thanks and gratitude, and all of a sudden, as though right on time, gold filled the room, and I saw several visions, which highlighted certain detail in order to prove these visions to be truth. I moved with them, as if dodging imaginary obstacles in my path, and discover so much. But after the gold disappeared and colour had returned, the objects reimposing to their natural place, all I could utter to Boldsketch was, I will be seeing you again. I rejoined with James again, patrolling like a soldier on night watch with posture grand and form immaculate. I almost hesitate to stop him, but I had to. The future of this investigation was at stake. But what happened in there? Could I control these visions? And where do they come from? Some sort of soul sense? Only time would reveal its secrets. But for now, these visions were allies. Back to the bank it is, then? James asks, as if eavesdropping on our entire conversation. Yes, James. You saw the soot as well? You're not the only one with a keen eye, Jekyll. And with a wink of assurance, we head back to the bank, in search of proof. I'll stand watch this time for you, gentlemen. And don't worry. Old McLean will cover your exposed flanks. No fire will consume you this time. Acting as a defensive parent, he really did care. Do not worry yourself, Sergeant. We will be in and out as soon as humanly possible. Hoping to not go through that whole ordeal once more. Through the ash and soot, words jump out at me like scurrying insects. Motive. Purpose. Plan. Execution. Victim. Murderer each with questions and place in this investigation. The odour is overpowering, but I am so thankful that all that was claimed were possessions and paper, not a life. Fragments of charred material lie scattered as bodies on a battlefield, each one telling a different account of the same war, of its Alpha and Omega. Gold glistens in certain areas, like treasure peeking through the floorboards. Could it be remnants of the flame, which had not yet been quenched, or was it something else? Something on the inside? Perhaps it is not. Perhaps it's shards of my visions I keep experiencing. I go to seek and notice a watch a lot like the watch that I had received and the compass from home. This watch, engraved with fine detail, had a blackened out face as if concealing the time at which the fire struck. And as I sweep it clean, the hour is revealed. And as I open the watch to reveal its components, so James points something to my attention. Jekyll, that's a silver pocket watch with attachment. And look here, an engraving of some sort, saying, Snitch? But why on earth would you mark your watch with your name as if a murderer's token went losing his possessions? No, Jekyll, don't you see? Whoever this watch belongs, they will know where to find this blood snitch person or be blood snitch themselves. James was right. I had to look at the blindingly obvious and see the truth past its deceit. I close the watch and another begins to shine, this time a bottle with a fragrance most familiar, almost that of the fur. Could Miss Idlewyn have been the one to set us ablaze? Or perhaps those who sold the fur, Mr. and Mrs. Ilias? But Mr. Ilias is in custody, so it could not have been him. Or could it? Perhaps a person working for him on the outside, an accomplice? Not enough evidence yielded to my attention. We would have to get more, and I knew just where to turn. Mr. and Mrs. Ilias, Furs and Wears Incorporated. I'll give you a hand if you wish, Jekyll. Flint. But of course, McLean, we are always in need of help. Even yours, <laughs> James jokingly mocks the sergeant, not realising he could easily make us walk there. We arrive back at the shop and notice a small shadowy figure appearing and disappearing behind the alleyway. We would have to be cautious. After all, we were being watched. But by whom? We had yet to find out. We proceeded, nonetheless, into the shop, and struggled past the thrall of customers, stroking furs and spraying perfumes like they were coming out of season, and the whole experience was almost as hectic as the fire at the bank. How one extreme can parallel another, and yet be so different? One as part of life, and the other a rarity. Each has the same effect on the surrounding public. Still, there was work to be done. Mrs. Ilias, would it be a trouble to ask you where you were on the night of the murder? Uh, Yes, of course. I was with my husband. Hope he is well. The entire time, and the only occasion I left his side was to use the lavatory and uh, socialise, whilst Jim discussed with other business types. Can anyone voice their account of you being there? James asks, as if closing in on a confession, and yet being thwarted every attempt he makes, due to a well-thought-out alibi, or perhaps the truth. Yes, Miss Eidelwynn can. She was there as well, and half the woman present here. Calmly, she states, whilst pointing to those present at the scene, and yet all different witnesses in their own right. Thank you for your time, Mrs. Elias, and hope to see you when all this is said and done. As I reached out my hand in order to leave her a kind gesture, her face pauses, and time begins to slow, as a clasp joins the two of us, gold glistening from behind her, revealing all manner of life history and tales. But what is this? A revelation indeed, but proof would be needed to make such an accusation, just as in the case of Bold Sketch. As my lips leave her hand, the time lost is regained, and the room returns to its original state. As if unravaged by time, and nobody is a witness to these magnificent visions, but this time... I hear a voice. A deep and strong voice, much like my own, but somehow unfamiliar, say... The darkness will never escape my eyes. Their secrets, my ears. And their sins, my smell. What was that? I feel weakened, as if something is becoming stronger by absorbing my strength. As I grow ever weaker, I would have to control it before it controlled me. As we question the other witnesses present in the shop, their lips full of motion, and yet it seems their words are stuck, we find the same thing uttered over and over and over. A name. Miss Idlewin. But who was she? What was her reason for her being in all the places we were? to stop us from finding out the truth. She would need to be found and questioned, as would the others if we were to draw a valid conclusion to this nightmare. The town hall would be the place to look, as they had everyone on record, and that would include, hopefully, Miss Idlewyn. To the town hall it was, with its grand entrance with pillars of exotic stone eroded somewhat, and cracked as part of the design, and the polished appearance reflecting the photography of the street's collusions and expressing wealth with each risen horizontal step overlooking a clear pond, within the structure, but not of water, but one of glass. A clock tower lies in precedence, above, with hands agape and face, weathered, looking to strike time in surprise and shock the unsuspecting keepers. The sun reflecting off its lower half has to point the way to a secluded passage, revealing it to lead to the answer. But as we were to find, only time would tell. Gleaming with knowledge and a sheer lack of privacy. I mean, you could access whoever you pleased, so long as you had permission. What an illusion! All your life's information at the disposal of others, much like that of our Creator, except this was meant as a means of control, and not of community, of manipulation, and not for safety. How our trust could be put in such leaders, which wish to observe our every detail, bending it to their whim, wherever it pleases them. Would we ever be free as a people or be ensnared by these leaders for the rest of time, not free to think, but simply to vote away our rights, blinded by their deceptive acts and elaborate rhetoric, whilst the power of our voice dwindles as though a candle in a window, fading into extinguishment. Good day, gentlemen, and how may I be of assistance? asks the keeper of the books, as if cursed to guard them with his life, and to read from them was his precedence, and his alone. Yes, sir, We wish to search your records regarding a private matter up at the palace, but you probably already know about it. Being cautious, so as not to give too much away and alert the public to Bloodsnitch presence. Ah, yes, sir. Who exactly are you searching for? A Miss Eidelwynn, James implies, as if waiting for his cue to launch himself into the conversation. Idle, Spot? Tune? Turn? One... There appears to be no Miss Idlewin on my records, gentlemen. I am terribly sorry for the inconvenience, but these records are always being updated, and she would be here if she was to live in this city. Thank you for your time, and we are grateful for your assistance. Enjoy the rest of your day. Miss Idlewin proved to be even more elusive than we first thought. Her appearance and existence would have to be a most recent and we would have to find her the old-fashioned way, building by building. The task seemed too daunting to achieve, but persistence would pay off, eventually, and it'd make victory all sweeter. Okay, James, you take the left, and I'll take the right. Try not to get too discouraged if the door is shunned into your face, dear boy. We will probably experience it far greater here, as this is where knowledge is vanished and greed is power. I'm not looking to bribe any of them to shun the door in my face, Jekyll. Looks bad enough, huh. <laughs> James always putting himself down. You would be lucky to have your money accepted, old friend. I do not think these rich folk accept common money, mocking the upper class, and trying to lighten spirits. We set off on our time-consuming task, having doors open and shut, each one more vigorous than the last, as our purpose was made aware of by the neighbouring peoples. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see something tracing our steps. But what? My vision enhances. I know what it is but not why. I catch a glimpse of the shadowy figure that was present at our arrival to the shop in the East District, but why had they followed halfway across the city? Planning another attack? Or perhaps in need of help? We continued on, and finally came to something worth discussing. James, over here. I signaled James, as if discovering an item of great importance, but all it is is a trail of footprints to James. What well, now? Jekyll is just some footprints, probably not important but you should know better than to walk down an alley alone. Not since the last time. So let us investigate together. James looks at me, as if my stubbornness would not be enough to allow division. And little did James know it, but I welcomed his protection. Not that I couldn't defend myself, but at least I would have my back covered, as in the case of the murder. Water being discarded from the openings like makeshift waterfalls, and us dodging the flash floods like some sort of undead dance, contorting our bodies into vulgar shapes and positioning that made us appear hooligans, but better act as fools than to be covered in... liquids. A voice calls to us. I ask James, Can you hear that as well, James? In case it was the voice from earlier. But James assures me, Yeah, Jekyll. I hear him, but I cannot see him. We unsheath our revolvers and point them toward the source of the noise, ready to pull the trigger at the slightest of movements. A shadow comes forward, and reveals itself. But who it is? (laughs) A heartwarming surprise. The young man from the estate who owed us a debt of gratitude. Hello again, sirs. How are you? Fine, my boy. You should have let us know sooner, then we wouldn't have seemed so nervous. Sheathing our weapons as fast as possible so as not to startle the young man. So why have you been following us, young man? I've followed, sirs, because I think I know how to repay your kindness. You see... I know a secret entrance where all the lower remnants congregate, and if you're looking for the deceiver, they'll no doubt be in there. (laughs) I laughed to myself, so as not to discourage the boy, but I hardly expected a criminal hiding place. But what I was about to be shown would make me consume my words, and it would not be the first time that an adult had learned from a child, as their minds are younger and more comprehensive. So a problem which would take a lifetime to us would seem of ease to them. However, once again we are led down the alley, and to a wooden slatted door bestowing a rugged appearance, splinters and carvings as though a prison for a caged animal. To us, a symbol of fear, the unknown, and the prospect of death looming overhead, whilst to the young man, only an underground entrance, padlocked and chained. What would it reveal when opened? Only time would tell. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. For any of you that are recently joining us, first off, welcome aboard. And basically, this is the section where we discuss the ideas that have come forward in the chapter and basically how they've come to be. So getting straight off, the first thing we see is a SpongeBob reference. Obviously, I highly recommend SpongeBob. Doesn't matter how old you are. It's a fantastic cartoon. Uh, but basically, there's a moment in the book where Jekyll confronts a drunkard uh, for flogging a peasant. And basically, this uh, reflects the episode called Flats, where basically SpongeBob's being bullied by a flatfish um, and he keeps threatening to kick his butt. So basically, SpongeBob then realises that because he's a sponge, he can just absorb his blows. So Flats ends up just punching SpongeBob to the point where he just exhausts himself and collapses on the floor. And then SpongeBob um, sort of gets like a, a round of applause from the rest of the class. And he turns around. And he's like, do not cheer me, fellow adult classmates. Flats was the real victim here. His life was on a trajectory leading to a violent road to nowhere. A road I call violence road. And he lifts up his fist. And then Mrs. Puff comes in and assumes that he's beat up um, Flats, which is quite a, a funny um, moment in the episode. So that obviously made its way into a light in the mist but obviously we sort of added a sense of realism to it with Jekyll confronting the drunkard over um, flogging the peasant with his cane. The second is we start to see the characters develop more real-life sort of aspects about their characters. So the thing that you'll realise when you're actually creating characters yourself is to make them more relatable to the reader, if you include physical features um, that can be sort of from people that you know, or quirks about their personality, certain uh, items of clothing that they'll wear, that sort of thing. It helps just to make that character more realistic. And we see that with the characters within this chapter, because especially in the case of the peasant that Jekyll meets, he goes on to describe her hair, especially of it being golden and the fact that it's got like a tinge of violet to it. This characteristic actually stems from a friend of ours back in college. Um, it was the first thing that I noticed, you know, as soon as I met her. Basically, her hair was blonde and she had like a purple streak to it. So it ends up finding its way into A Light in the Mist because it was a, a really sort of vibrant duality of colour that I hadn't experienced before that time. And I've since seen it like, you know, on several people uh, with loads of different combinations, you know, blonde with a pink streak, uh black with sort of, red tinges to the to the fringe, you know, all sorts of colour combinations that, you know, if something stands out to you, you'll end up finding it present within the characters you create. The third point is that we see reference to a fire. Now, I haven't actually experienced being in a fire. Uh, I know what it is to be evacuated for a fire alarm and that sort of thing, but I haven't actually experienced what it is to be a fire. So this is one of those cases where if you don't know or you haven't actually experienced something... It pays to do research. So the way that we went about doing this was watching various different films uh, that had, like, obviously scenes where the characters were having to escape a fire, researching the behavior of a fire. So, for example, you know, if you open a door, there's something which is called backdraft, which basically, you know, there's a sudden engulf of air and it causes the flames to surge you know, because all of a sudden they get like a an ignition source, you know, a fuel source, if you will. And it's just, you know, doing your research. And if even if you haven't experienced that particular scenario, you can still get eyewitness accounts, you know, from people that have actually experienced that and basically just create a scenario based off of as real as you can get it. Um, but only using the resources that you yourself haven't experienced. I mean, a lot of authors will tell you to write what you know. Uh, I prefer to write what you know and research what you don't. I've mentioned this in previous uh, episodes. So we see that in um, the fire scene within this chapter. The fourth is a reference to an old myth uh, from uh, Victorian London, Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. It was actually uh, a myth that was circulating around the late 1800s. And for anyone who isn't um, kept up to speed with... That particular myth, anyone who hasn't seen The Demon Barber of Fleet Street uh, with um, Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter, I highly recommend it. It is a good film, uh, despite being of a musical taste. Uh, it is a decent film, but basically the story is that Sweeney Todd would sort of practice on the upper class and then he would, instead of, you know, doing his ordinary barber duties, he would slit their throat and he would have a, a trap mechanism that would sort of flip them back in the chair they'd go down a chute they'd be processed into meat and then a character beneath had a pie shop uh, underneath the barber shop so they would actually chop up the meat and they would find it actually in the pies and people would then buy those pies and eat them um, it's basically just sort of like a, a reflection of the conditions of the time and how poor the conditions were and how unreadily available sources of meat were. So people were actually having to resort to tales of cannibalism and all these different sorts of things, especially in the poorer districts, which we see reflected in in Sweeney Todd. And it's just nice to sort of include a bit of realism of the time and just sort of remind you that we are in that time setting. And the final point is we have an introduction to Hyde's senses, so to speak. Now, I've mentioned before that we base a lot of the um, things that happen in our chapters on inspirations. And this is one of those where it's actually influenced by a game because hide senses uh, very much reflects eagle vision from Assassin's Creed. Now Anyone who's played the Assassin's Creed franchise, I can't recommend it enough. Um, but basically you'll have what's called eagle vision, which allows you to see in almost like a sixth sense. And you're able to see residual people's energies, you're you're able to see objects that have a particular value to like an investigation or something that has monetary value. It will enable you to depict enemy from friends, all these different sorts of things. And we took aspects of that spirit sense, that soul sense, so to speak, and incorporated that into Hyde. And we obviously see Hyde starting to sort of knock at the door, if you will, in this chapter. And we see that He's starting to take more of a control over Jekyll and Jekyll feels like he's he's now starting to battle with that alter ego, so to speak, that consciousness that's sort of surging within him. But because he enables these visions to occur, he's of use to the investigation. So it's almost like Jekyll is trying to fight his influence, but he doesn't quite want to suppress him because then he feels like he'll lose that almost supernatural edge. So that pretty much wraps it up for this part of the podcast. So... Let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Basically, this is where we discuss, as it says, tips of the trade for any of you who are aspiring to be authors. It's basically giving you tips, so to help you from all the way from getting started to actually getting published. So in this episode, we're going to be picking up from where we left off the last time. So the last time we were actually coming up with the name. ...for the book um, that you have planned. And this episode, we're going to be actually going into sort of the planning stages itself. Now, this is going to be broken up into four sections, which we'll discuss each episode. It's going to last over the next four episodes. But basically, there are four sections, at least that I use for planning, uh, which is plot, characters, backstory and time period. Now, as I just said, all of these will be discussed in their own right within the future episodes... Basically, you know, this isn't set in stone. You can basically add as many sections as you need or require. But I would, like, strongly recommend that you do have some form of plan going into it. Of course, it doesn't work for everybody. Some people just like to just work off the fly. I know Stephen King personally doesn't write anything down. He doesn't plan anything. He just writes and, you know, um, he calls it magic, basically, how he is able to create what he creates. I'm the complete opposite. I prefer to write stuff down. Uh, I'm always jotting things on my whiteboard or I'm putting stuff in notebooks. And basically what I do is I just draw like a spider diagram with these four sections and basically then have a load of branches coming off them and just detail them in accordance. So getting off with the first one, plot. Basically, this is the breakdown of the story. And what you want to do is... Well, what I would do is I always bullet point what you want to cover in each chapter. So what I do... Is basically, so for your first chapter, say, I don't know, you introduce the scene. That would be your first bullet point. The second is you introduce your protagonist. So that would be your main character. Uh, you have a basal description of them. Maybe give a little bit of background, uh, on the character. Maybe describe where they are, you know, set the scene sort of thing. And that would pretty much be it for me for the first chapter. I mean, obviously you, you know, like I said, again, this isn't set in stone. You can pretty much have any you want in these chapters but it just gives you like a framework for you to build around so even if you're struggling for ideas to actually come into that chapter you know that you've covered your main points that you want to achieve by the end of it if there's nothing that gets added to it then it doesn't matter you know the thing you'll discover with chapters is they can be as long or as short as you want them to be there's no real set rule that's the beauty of being creative you are in complete creative control. So with the plot, as I would say, you would then go on with each different chapter and you would bullet point what you want to come of that chapter. So with A Light in the Mist, it was a case of the first bullet points and then in the second chapter we wanted to introduce the side character, so we introduce James. Um, the third chapter was more getting into the murder, and then the fourth chapter was getting into the investigation side of things. And you can see that as it progresses. Everything that's sort of been added, like the various scenes, like the one in the previous chapter, you know, the fire scene... uh scenes where they've interacted with people on the street, all these different sorts of things, that's just come based off of those bullet points. You know, they, they haven't been written down. They haven't been planned. They've just sort of flowed. You know, the, the way we refer to it, we call it the river, basically. Um, and if it's flowing, then you'll just be writing. And all of a sudden, you'll realize that you've written a couple of pages. You don't even know what you've written. You feel like you've had almost an out-of-body experience. And you read back over it. And you your mind has just created this scene. And it's just outplayed. You've got all your dialect and all that kind of stuff. And it has nothing to do with the bullet points. You go back and you read your old bullet points and you think, oh, wow, I I actually didn't even go anywhere near that. I didn't cover it. But it adds a sense of dynamic and it adds a sense of just going off track, if you will, to that chapter. And it can either make it longer. It can make it more interesting. It can make it more elaborate. You can go into all sorts of things. It can even be as pivotal as actually changing the trajectory of the story which we've seen in a few cases ourselves, where it's actually taken the trajectory of the story completely off tangent, and you've gone down a completely different pathway than when you bullet pointed all the chapters. So don't be afraid if that changes. If those bullet points change throughout the, the course of the book, don't be afraid of it. Roll with it, you know, because sometimes it can make a book a thousand times better if you feel like it's making it worse and you're sort of coming away from what you actually wanted to achieve in the book, then obviously come back to those. It's more of a reference point that you can come back to, uh, which is always something to bear in mind. So the next thing, that, well, pretty much the last thing that we want to discuss as far as plot is concerned is the dreaded topic, plot twists. Now, plot twists deserves an episode in itself. So we'll probably end up doing a further episode on plot twists some, somewhere down the line. But Just for now, I just want to introduce the fact that plot is where you would also think of your plot twists if you want any. So especially in uh, the thriller uh, genre, basically your plot twist would be that you have a suspect that maybe you've introduced early on in the story. And then for the rest of it, they've completely gone off the radar. And then all of a sudden they come up, they come back at the end and they turn out to be the murderer. Now, this is the This is one of the stereotypical ways of having a plot twist in a murder mystery, you know, and you make it always the first person you meet because by the time the reader has read the rest of the book, they've forgotten about that character. And then all of a sudden they come back into the story and it's like, oh, yeah, I never would have thought of that person. Well, you would have, especially if the writer has left subtle hints throughout the story. Now, this can be said of loads of different uh, mystery novels, but, you know, there are some that stick to the blindingly obvious. So they will incriminate someone throughout the book and they will remain with that person, you know, so it completely throws you off tangent because you expect it to change. So there's all different ways that you can have a plot twist specifically in the thriller genre. But obviously, as we discuss further genres, there's different ways in which you can have plot twists, especially in horror. There are so many different combinations of plot twists that you can have, some that work really well, some that don't. But basically, the thing to remember with plot twists is you need to have a pretty decent build up to a plot twist. If you're going to have any sort of plot twist, what you need to be doing all the way through the story is leaving subtle hints that lead up to that. Because even if the reader, like, skips over those points, they can still then, once the plot twist has been revealed, go back over the story and pick up those things they missed before. It encourages the reader not only to read your book a second time, which makes it more of a compelling novel, but it also encourages them... To look for those things in future novels. So they, they look for those small details. They take them into account. And, you know, then we come into things like, um, the need to check for consistency throughout your story and, and all these sorts of things. And obviously in future episodes, we will go into more, uh, detail as far as plot twists are concerned. But just for now, like I said, it's, it's a thing to think about as far as plot twists are concerned. So. And this is obviously the section where you'll be thinking about either leaving your book on a cliffhanger so that it leads into another one, or whether you want it to be linked to another book in the series. These sorts of things, this is where you want to start thinking about creating a series. If you are creating a series, what are the links going to be that tie those books together? Is it going to be a character that's contained within all those books? Is it going to be a case that's shared between all those books, you know, something that sort of ties them in. And that all has things to do with plot twists. And obviously, as you go into the series, you can have more and more elaborate plot twists. But don't get too bogged down with that for now. All that we're thinking about now is the fact that plot twists are a section with which you can consider in the actual plot if you want them at all. I mean, you don't have to have a plot twist. You know, you can have a murder mystery that is simply... It follows the course of action and it finds the person to be guilty and then the end of the story. It can still be just as good a book. It doesn't necessarily need a plot twist. So it's just something to bear in mind. Okay, so that pretty much sums it up for this episode. And that about wraps it up for this episode. Once again, guys, thank you for tuning in. Really appreciate you taking the time out of your otherwise busy schedules to make us a part of it. Really appreciate that. Of course, we'll endeavour to include all the links to anything that's been mentioned in this episode below. And I would encourage you, if you've enjoyed this podcast, to head on over to another podcast hosted by a friend of mine, Mike Burton. It's called Genuine Chit Chat. Basically, it's a podcast about conversations. There's no topic off limits. So if that seems like anything you'd be interested in, be sure to head on over there at Genuine Chit Chat. You can find it on all the podcast websites as well as YouTube. And be sure to go over there. Give it a listen, and I'm sure if you've enjoyed this podcast, you'll enjoy that one too. So thanks again, guys. Thanks a lot. It means a lot to us. And I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you next time.